Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and join us for our weekly analysis of IT news. We've got stories on Arista, Microtech, Dell, Cisco, and more. We're sponsored in part today by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up to watch Palo Alto Networks, SASE Converge 2021. It's an on-demand webinar where you'll hear from leading voices in networking and security, get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. That's at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. This episode is also sponsored in part by Pluribus Networks. Pluribus is inviting you to attend a special video broadcast on March 16th, 2022 to learn how they're delivering cloud networking. Sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. That's pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. Last but not least, stay tuned after the news for a sponsored TechBytes conversation with Fortinet about its FortiGuard Labs threat intelligence service. It analyzes billions of global security events every day to provide actionable information for network and security teams. Yeah, it was a good show, actually, because you don't, um, sometimes I think you forget how broad Fortinet is. We've mentioned it a few times. When you look at their mm -hmm. financial results, you realize just how big the organization is. And I just just wonder how many people realize that they've actually got, what did they say, 300, more than 300 staff working in a threat intelligence unit. Right, just on threat intelligence, yeah. yes, doing uh, zero-day research, vulnerability research, and of course, looking yeah. at everything going on across the uh, information realm to, uh, yeah, stay on top of what's happening. Yeah, and you know, here at here at Network Break, we generally believe that when companies do it in-house, things go better than doing it with a third party or outsourcing it or co-sourcing it or partnerships or whatever. So that's good to see, I think. Anyway, worth listening to the story. <laughs> Yeah, take a listen. All right, we'll dive into the news. Uh, Arista Networks is extending its Network Detection and Response, or NDR, offering by integrating sensors directly into its EOS Network OS software. So this is initially available on the 720XP series of campus switches. It's a new software module that can copy packet data directly from the switch and stream it to Arista's NDR analytics platform, which is called Nucleus. And because this software module is running in EOS, you don't have to use a packet broker or any kind of external sensor or server as you do with other NDR products. Yeah, this is uh, that this emerging trend that all security functions will be done in and converged into existing networking products. So we've seen Cisco do something similar with its SD campus and be very successful with it, by the way. Their campus business is up substantially uh, by embedding security into the switch. And the switch can fingerprint application flows, looking for threats and using heuristics and stuff like that, as well as doing mm -hmm. all the other stuff, micro-segmentation, blah, 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 right? Which is all, and network right. access control and so on and so on. Um, and despite the fact that I think that eventually all of this will come to an, a very quick end as zero trust edge, you know, as we get to this edge computing where there's just people connected to the internet, there's no point in connecting to a campus and then having it segment unless you've got a particular type of campus, like a hospital with x-ray machines or an industrial environment. So this is, to my mind, campus is becoming a niche market, not a general purpose market. And so... I think Arista's been looking at what Cisco's been doing in the SD campus space and going like, hmm, I want me some of that. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they've already invested in a wireless company uh, to get into the YLAN space, and now they're branching out with NDR in the campus, and they're saying you don't have to buy extra additional hardware if you're already using our uh, switches. Mm. You can just get starting that, uh, you can get that packet mm. copying function directly on the box and then send it to our you know, uh, analytics platform to yep. do all the analytics goodness. And as I understand it, this is all based around specific features of the ASIC inside. So there'll be a Broadcom ASIC inside of this most likely. And Broadcom added some functions to its latest generation of silicon to allow high-speed packet copying, which is not normally how these ASICs work. Copying of packets like for multicasting or broadcasting was always a problem for older switches. And now it's become much more of a thing. And you want your switch to not just forward packets, but also to be able to duplicate them, copy them, capture them, send them off to threat intelligence. So make them part of the security fabric, which makes the switches 
more valuable. And then, of course, networking vendors are now adding the software functions on top of that. In this case, Arista's got network data recorders and now the threat intelligence software to go on top of it. Yeah, so I think what's interesting is that um, Arista also acquired BigSwitch. BigSwitch has a software-based packet broker and they still want you to use that for the data center. Mm. So this is mostly a campus solution. Um, but it is, if you're invested in Arista in the campus, just sort of another way to make that product a little bit more sticky for you. Yeah. So We've also talked a lot about NDR the past couple of weeks. I think Gigamon just boosted their NDR offering. We talked about new NBA features and Aviatrix. So there's a lot of action happening in the space. Well, I think security is very much top of mind. And as we'll talk later in the show, you know, everybody wants security. And if you're investing money in new assets, you want to be able to tick lots of boxes around security and having more capabilities to put security in the network, not just at the edge. I would generally believe that over time, we'll see security moving to the edge of the network. This zero trust, capture at the edge, have some sort of agent at the edge device, and then the campus becomes less relevant, except for legacy mm -hmm. devices, printers, fax machines, you know, photocopiers, uh, then, you know, perhaps what it is today. But the customers are where they are now, and maybe that's a step too far for many people to imagine but this security obviously is is top of mind. Everybody, we've had the wave of ransomware attacks, the wave of destructive attacks. We've seen DDoS, we've seen internal threats, external threats, and now, of course, we've seen cyber activity as a result of the Ukraine, uh, Russia-Ukraine war that's going on. Um, so everybody's going to want to have some security, I think, and more choices for it. And the other reason I think Arista can do this is because of the way they designed EOS from the ground up as a modular operating system in that every function essentially runs as its own little software function. And so they were uh, stressing to me in the briefing that if this uh, onboard sensor goes down, it's not going to take the rest of the NOS with it. Um, it's its own individual function uh, running with the NOS, but not, uh, it's not a mod, it's, it's a, not a monolith. Uh, yeah, so yeah. It, it can, it can be started or stopped as necessary. That sounds like a cheap and shot started. at uh, Cisco's into software <laughs> architecture, which is not normally modular, uh, but it's viable. Obviously that is a feature that customers have turned to them and said, we want something that does this. So maybe, maybe there's something in behind that, if you know what I'm saying. But, you yeah. know, I think as I, as I've said, I think that generally what Arista does best is they do Cisco better than Cisco does. And perhaps their success to date is a testament to that. That's working for them. Yeah. Although I will not, I think it's Cisco's NXOS was designed modular. Uh, with that, the new OS they rolled out a few years ago, uh, along those Arista lines. So yes, maybe yeah. Cisco taking a page from Arista. It doesn't there. mean it stayed modular over time. Could be. Could be. Hmm. All right. Links in the show notes. If you want to find out more, we'll move on. Microtik, they've announced a new PCIe card that can run a full routing stack. The idea is that you slot this card into a server and then use the card for routing duties. It's running Microtik's router OS. Lots of people seem to come down on the, that is ridiculous. Why would not just buy, I want a hardware router so that it's separate from the servers. But I would put it to you that there's plenty of use cases where you want a router to be a separate functional, but you want to put it inside a server because maybe what you're doing is putting a router at the edge of a wireless network and then you're mm -hmm. attaching a server to be able to do billing or logging of and to do flow management mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's lo that's just one. I can think of lots and lots of edge-type use cases where a router inside of a commodity server is exactly where you want. And the Microtech routers have been developing a bit of a fan base amongst a group of people for the high quality of their MPLS stack. So you're talking... A, a router that with two 25 gig interfaces, so that's 25 gigs line rate, I believe. But even if it's only 10 gig, and it's 200 bucks, it's 200 bucks, right, <laughs> for a 10 gig fully functional MPLS router that you just put inside a server, 
Um, I think there's a market for that. Now, this is this type of thing router on a on a card inside a server has been something that's come and gone for 30 years. It, every now and then it gets a trend and it comes in and it goes back out again, right? It, whether it's right. here to stay this time or not, I don't know. But for 200 bucks, wow, this is really quite something. And I think that definitely aligns with sort of Microtech's value proposition, which is, you know, low cost, high performance equipment. Yeah. And and people say that the code is as stable as and reliable as and fully featured as you need. I, I'm sure there's something missing, right? I'm, I'm sure that if you did a bake-off and started to get into some corner conditions, maybe you'd find some gaps. But don't do that. Don't you? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it's like going to the doctor and saying it hurts when I punch myself. Well, don't punch yourself, right? Um <laughs> That's, yeah, the other thing is to make sure you use this where it's supposed to be used. They're, they're not positioning this as a core router or anything. It's not going to carry yeah. substantial workloads, but there are plenty of use cases for it. Yeah. Absolutely. I do think so. Yeah. Have a look. Uh, and just to round it out, it's running on an ARM CPU, so obviously much cheaper than an ASIC. Well, I think it'll have an ARM CPU to run the OS, and there'll be an ASIC that's doing the forwarding. So it is a smart NIC in that sense. So it is a, an instantiation of a data processing unit, just not the way that I normally think about it. So if you could maybe go and get us commodity DPU and instantiate a full BGP routing engine on top, you know, it does MPLS. That's what this is in my, in my mind. Yeah. Well, sticking with uh, hardware, Dell Technologies and Marvell are partnering on another PCIe card. This is designed to run open RAN software functions. And the goal is, of course, to offload processing from server CPUs while getting uh, open RAN capabilities. Yeah. The key here is the partnership between Dell and Marvell. Uh, Marvell is an ASIC maker. We don't talk about them much here because they don't seem to publish information that I can readily access and they don't reach out to talk to us. Um, but inside the Marvell portfolio is a product called Oction, which is a range of accelerators, particularly data accelerators or SSL accelerators. And yep. in this case, they've welded the Fusion chipset from the Oction product line into a NIC, which can now become slotted into a Dell server. And that is the same chipset that if you went and bought a custom Nokia 5G solution or an Ericsson 5G product or whatever in one of their custom hardware appliances, which is actually inside doing the hardware acceleration. Not always as a NIC. Sometimes it's welded onto the motherboard at the factory, but sometimes it's actually just a NIC in an x86 server that's got a different colored paint inside, but it's custom for all intents and purposes. But um, that's where we're headed with this. Yeah, so this is doing digital signal processing. It's also running ARM. Uh, and the idea is, of course, that uh, the whole open RAN movement is to take off-the-shelf components and position them for the RAN market to be cheaper than those, you know, Nokia Ericsson customized gear. Yeah, that's right. And it's really quite or a straightforward thing. Yeah. I think the interesting thing here, of course, is Dell wants to sell commodity off-the-shelf servers to new markets. And telcos have sort of been resistant to that idea. They sort of want it, but they actually don't want to do it because they don't want to get rid of all their custom hardware and accept the fact that there was actually no magic about, you know, their custom 4G, 3G stacks. And um, I think if telcos would like to buy a lot of just common servers, um, if they got into the open RAN model, but this hardware acceleration is a sticking point. This is part of the reason we've seen so many vendors get into the DPU market for RAN, because they need mm -hmm. the hardware acceleration to make that work, to displace the incumbent vendors around this space. So in theory, if they can, if Dell can make this stick, um, that's a very good thing for the the service provider business unit, but it also gives some credibility to the enterprises in saying, you know, this DPU smart NIC hardware accelerated in a server is actually something that could work if they can go and sit in front of customers and say, you know, well, we do this in open RAN. Why aren't you doing it in your data center? That's right. 
Yeah, and Dell does uh, position this for its Power Edge servers, but it says it also this Marvel uh, Marvel PCIe card can also run on other x86 platforms. Mm. All right, quick break to tell you about one of our sponsors, Palo Alto Networks. They launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE, SASE Converge 2021. There's an on-demand version available. You can hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO Nir Zook, uh, Gartner VP uh, Neil McDonald, and Martin Casado, the godfather of SDN. You'll also hear about Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action, get details on the impact of SASE technologies, and learn about forthcoming innovations. If you'd like to see that, go to sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to register. That's sasseconverge, S-A-S-E, converge.paloaltonetworks.com. Back to the news, HPE has announced a partnership with IR Labs to develop silicon photonics for high-performance computing. The partners are working on interconnects for HPE Slingshot. Slingshot's a network fabric for supercomputers and HPC clusters. HPE can't help themselves with HPC, but it turns out that um, when you go and dig into the market for high-performance computing, it's a massive growth phase. And it's also something where Whitebox hasn't taken off. So the sorts of universities and campuses and security institutions that are doing high-performance compute for data analysis are not turning to white box and assembling their own. They're still turning to the branded vendors. And that market has been growing at 20, 30% per quarter for all the vendors, Dell, Cisco, and mm -hmm. HP. And so what HP has done here is partner up with some startup that nobody's ever heard of who's doing silicon photonics for high-performance compute. So some way of doing a high-speed interconnect. One of the biggest challenges of high-performance computing is getting the lowest possible latency uh, and the lowest possible power consumption for that latency. So InfiniBand is is good. It's very fast. It's very low latency um, from an application point of view. InfiniBand's no different to Ethernet in the network, but it's very high performance from the application because it doesn't go through the packetization phase. It does memory-to-memory -memory transfers. And mm -hmm. if you could replace that with silicon photonics, you could dramatically reduce the power consumption uh, that goes on here, and particularly in terms of moving data potentially even off the CPU and onto the network. So instead of having a NIC, you could, you go straight out. So silicon photonics is something that's been around. We've talked about it before. We said in, Intel's got some silicon photonics coming in uh, switches. They showed some prototypes there where there's direct fiber optic interfaces on the core ASIC. So instead of having SIRDESs to go from, you know, the chip puts out this parallel digital signal across, you know, 32 bits or 64 bits wide, and then it has to be serialized so it gets transmitted out a pair of fiber optics. It'd be so much easier if you could just take the, the fiber optic straight off the chip, then you wouldn't have to go through the gearboxes. And that's so much simpler. So this is in that vein, high speed, low latency, low power, and also uh, smaller dies. So if you have low power consumption, you're not drawing as much power into the chip, so you have less heating. And you also have other benefits, like you don't have to worry about current drains and so forth and so on. So it'd be very interesting mm -hmm. to see what's happening here. Although HP is partnering with somebody, not buying them, which is a bit odd. Well, HP did announce that its venture arm is investing in IR, so it sounds like they're dating and they mm -hmm. just haven't uh, married yet. Yeah, we saw that uh, with Pensando, and I don't think that's worked out particularly well. Um, to be fair, Pensando has sort of been uh, displaced by generic smartniks coming to the market and bigger, you know, better resourced players coming in. Um, but I think HP is doing here what Cisco does, which is has an investment vehicle which taps into the startup market. And by getting right. people inside these companies, they get a lot of insights into what's happening. Uh, right. with those companies and then in the marketplace too. It's probably cheaper spending money with investing in startups than it is to hire an analyst firm to give you a report on a market or a product. <laughs> Have you seen the price of Gartner these days and how much money they're making? I mean, oh boy. I remember the last time we yeah. covered Gartner's uh, financial results, I was gobsmacked at how much money they make. Yeah, and it's gotten, it's gotten even better for Gartner. 
I'm sure cu- customers are just pouring money into Gartner's products. Literally, it's like a torrent. So the, the loss of their their conference business has not slowed them down in the least. So yeah, I think it would be you know dropping a hundred million in here for a business that you might get some money from. Probably better better money spent than twenty million on an analysis firm giving you a product report. Could be. All right, sticking with HPE, the company also announced a new private 5G service that enables wide area connectivity for use cases like manufacturing, oil and gas rigs, shipping ports, and so on. The service is built on existing HPE software and hardware. It can be deployed as a chassis using HPE's edge line converge system or distributed with edge locations and cloud management. Yeah, I'm still dubious about private 5G. That doesn't mean it's not worth trying. And I certainly think most of the vendors feel there's something there that they have to be playing with it. Uh, to to bring something to market. And so we've seen AWS come up with a private 5G. We've seen a number of companies come up with private 5G offerings. Microsoft's got one based off their cloud as well. So why not? In this case, it's a green lake. So you don't even have to, you know, really buy all that much. You can just buy a, a license for it. No way you go. Right. GreenLake lets you get hardware and software, but pay for it as a consumption model, sort of, you know, you only pay for what you use so you can get a big chassis, but if you're not using the whole thing, you're not paying for the whole thing. Yeah. So nice way to start. And then if your private 5G really doesn't take off, you know, in theory, Wi-Fi 6, E7, 7, E8, you know, might cover someone you want. I think there's definite value to 5G, but I just can't help but feel that this isn't going to be a significant market. But there are definitely niche use cases, like as we've said before, in, in factories, oil rigs, shipping ports. Right. You know, really? Is that enough money to make a whole market and to justify entire business units and the amount of investment we're seeing in it? I'm not so sure. Well, Cisco seems to think so. We teased this a couple of weeks ago. They mentioned they're going to be debuting a private 5G offering. They said more details will come out at the Mobile World Congress, which is happening next week as we're recording. So we may be talking about Cisco's 5G next week. Uh, A little teaser. Yeah, I'm sure that Cisco will be coming last, late to market, waiting for competitors to frame it out. So they can focus on solutions that customers want. So they'll be waiting for customers to tell them what they want, I think. And just in case you're wondering, wait a minute, doesn't HPE own Aruba and why would they be competing with YLAN? They're uh, positioning this as a complementary to traditional Wi-Fi networks, not a replacement. And they say that they can integrate Aruba Network's uh, wireless gear to enable uh, 5G and Wi-Fi roaming. So if you've got people moving in between the two networks, they can hook you up. Yeah, well, I think that's realistic. A lot of companies will still want Wi-Fi. There'll be Wi-Fi devices not everything in the world has a 5G card in it yet. You know, right. so you right. sure you can have a private 5G and connect your smartphones and your tablets, but you can't connect your laptops. So you're going to need Wi-Fi and 5G. And I think Aruba is probably one of the best positioned for that, the most credible solutions in that space where potentially they could weld the two together, especially with ClearPass and access control. If they could unify the Wi-Fi right. without having to use all of the 5G software and the massive overhead that 5G puts into uh, staff management or edge management, then yeah, be interesting. Right. That clear pass comes in handy if you're looking to do things like separate your IT and OT networks in particular. All right. A quick break to hear about our other sponsor, Pluribus Networks. Pluribus delivers cloud networking solutions that dramatically reduce complexity and increase business velocity for enterprises and service providers in the distributed multi-cloud era. Mark your calendar for an important video broadcast event on March 16th to see how Pluribus and NVIDIA are revolutionizing cloud networking for good. It's a can't-miss event, and you can sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloudnetworking. That's pluribusnetworks.com slash cloudnetworking. Mark your calendars for March 16th. Back to the news, Cloudflare has announced the acquisition of Area One Security. They're an email security company. They focus on preventing phishing attacks. Cloudflare is paying $162 million for the company. 
Yeah, so Cloudflare announced an email offering in 2021 and uh, added security to it shortly after that. Although the security functions have been fairly limited and the email has been mostly to do with routing. So Cloudflare is doing what it does best. It announces some functions and then it adds some functions and then it adds some functions Mm -hmm. and then it's got an Mm -hmm. entire product coming together which is competitive with major seed, you know, major providers from the other one. I think in this case, what we're seeing is Cloudflare rolling out towards providing an email service to compete with Google Mail or Azure Outlook. If that's what you want and you think Cloudflare's got a solution for you, you should probably have a look. But in this case, this bolt-on acquisition is an Area 1 security who just does the phishing component. So you, people expect your email to be secure, so you've got to be scanning it for spam and for phishing attacks. And in this case, Cloudflare has appears to have decided to reach out and buy a company. Maybe it needed more headcount to ramp that up business up a bit faster, but uh, that's what I think is happening here. Yeah, so both Cloudflare and Area One Securities services work with webmail offerings like Gmail and Microsoft Exchange Online, so it's not like you have to replace your email infrastructure. Mm. Um, you can essentially drop this in front of whatever you're using for email and they do the scan. Yeah, so if you have an Exchange service on-prem, you could route it through this and it would clean the feed before you get it. That makes right. perfect and sense. same thing with yeah. Office 365, if that's what you're doing. Yeah, well. and so you're not paying for somebody else. You don't have to buy a third-party product or if you're using Cloudflare already. I think this is a smart. You know, it's like bolt-on. Cloudflare just keeps having more and more of these products. Every time I go back there, I keep finding functions that weren't obvious to me. Um, uh-huh. And at some point, they're going to have enough of them that you just go, well, I bet wonder if Cloudflare's got something that does this. Uh, and this uh, aligns with your put a ring on it philosophy, Greg, because Cloudflare was a customer of Area 1 Security and they liked it so much they bought it. Yeah. And I think they'll get good synergies from that. Having the people in-house and uh, pushing its development in a direction that they want makes more sense than trying to, you know, pull the levers from across the road. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually a a decent blog from Cloudflare that sort of outlines their philosophy toward email security. It's in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, Moving on, Cisco reported financial results for its second quarter of 2022. The company had revenues of $12.7 billion, up 6% year-over-year, and net income of $3 billion, up 17% year-over-year. Yeah, so we talked last week about Cisco making was rumored to have made an offer to buy Splunk, uh, and it would appear that that uh, didn't go forward in any substantial way. They're rumored to be offering twenty billion uh, to buy Splunk. This week, they've announced that they're adding fifteen billion dollars to the authorization of a stock repurchase program. So presumably, that's where your twenty billion dollars went. Um, they decided <laughs> to give it back to shareholders instead of to buy and grow the business. Note that the revenue growth was three to five percent. They're predicting. Uh, for the next quarter, three to five percent revenue growth year over year, and earnings per share to go up just marginally three or three to five percent. What's interesting here, I think, is that Cisco's getting six percent, five to six percent growth year over year on their business, and net income is actually up. So they're extracting more profits from the same customers. So it's up seventeen percent year over year. At some point, customers should, in theory, go like this product's getting more expensive. And I'm getting less for it. That is, I'm you know for the, whatever I'm paying it for today, I'm encrypt the thing. Um, the analysts are highlighting that Cisco's made four price increases over the last six months, and those prices will start to flow into the market over the next six months. So you know we will be looking to see if Cisco's revenue slides, which would indicate that customers are turning away and not willing to keep doubling down on the price increases that Cisco wants to charge. Now keep in mind, Cisco's got good reasons. Supply chain is up, freight costs are up all that type of stuff. So it's not unrealistic for Cisco to increase its prices. But it's also notable that, to me at least, that every other tech company is increasing at 10 to 12%, and Cisco's only growing at 5 to 6 So you draw your own conclusions from that. 
I went through uh, a bit of the uh, analyst call um, and a lot of the analysts were asking questions about, you know, you're talking about this huge backlog of demand. Is that demand real uh, or are folks just doubling up on orders uh, just to make sure they get what they need? And Cisco says, yes, we, we do think that it's real, but there are analysts, I think, a little bit nervous about whether this backlog is going to result in revenues down the line. Yeah, well, they did say that. They said that customers are placing orders now for deployments that they plan for next year where before mm-hmm. they would have ordered it on a six to 12 week lead time. Now they're ordering it on a six to 12 month lead time. And Cisco believes that a lot of its product backlog. So if you look at it from that point of view, Cisco's business isn't growing. They're just getting the orders earlier and they can't fulfill the orders. Right. So the growth is shallow and that's why Cisco's share price remains flat over the year. Cisco isn't growing particularly like it's growing, but relatively slowly compared to its competitors. And but it does hand out substantial dividends. So in this case, they've signaled that yep. they're going to increase the dividend and buying back. They have a total authorization to buy back 18 billion shares, $18 billion worth of shares, wow. which, you know, with a market capitalization of $250 billion, that is a substantial chunk of your right. outstanding capitalization. So for investors, that's fine. That'll keep the share price going up. So if you're measuring Cisco's success by share price, um, it is to some extent being propped up by the buyback program. Although they are also saying that uh, business uh, for the quarter has been up across essentially all the BUs, which is good for them as well. Yeah, I think the top line is up because of price increases that they instituted in October, November are starting to come through and there's more to come through. So I expect to see the top line revenue grow, uh, but will that turn customers off or will customers say that's just the world we live in and move on? Who knows? We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right, moving on to Dell. Dell Technologies reported their Q4 and full year fiscal uh, results for 2022. For the year, the company had revenues of $101.2 billion, up 17% over last year, and net income of $4.9 billion. And for the fourth quarter, they had revenues of $28 billion, up 16%, but they posted a net income loss of $29 million. So the announcement here wasn't that they announced a loss. It's just that the market was expecting substantially more here. And the earnings per share and the gross revenue was under what the market was expecting. And so as a result, the market uh, repriced the shares down to the where the new numbers are. And a reading, they, I couldn't get a transcript of the analyst call, but reading between the lines, it seems to me two things. One is the company said it's now going to start paying a quarterly dividend of 33 cents per share. <gasps> Imagine a technology company paying a dividend. Wow, what an innovation. Uh, <laughs> so that's going to like. Yeah. That'll change Dell. If Dell starts to pay sustained dividends for a sustained period, then it'll move from being a growth stock to being a uh, dividend stock, and it will be priced Mm -hmm. slightly differently, more like Cisco. And that would also signal that Dell believes it might have reached the end of its growth cycle or its retransition from where it used to be, you know, the the old staid box shifter. Um, But I think also from what I could read, Dell seems to be most impacted by the supply chain disruptions not so much a lack of sales or poor administration or poor leadership. They were expecting to have delivered more and the supply chain seems to have disrupted Dell more. I mean, they are shifting such a lot of business. Like the client solutions group generated 17.3 billion. That's desktops. Right. And that's up yep. 26% year over year. Um, yep. <laughs> so when you're shifting product at that sort of scale, your supply chain just has to be like mind boggling. So. 
Right. And I'm presuming that a lot of that has to do with the work from home environment we're in, where companies are upgrading their workers, you know, home gear, new laptop and new desktop instead of coming into the office. And we'll see if that continues as, you know, the pandemic starts to shake out. But for now, it's been good for Dell. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be interesting to see how this works out because, you know, these companies are all sitting on orders. Customers will wait patiently because they we all being told that the supply chain is out of our control. So you order it and you just have to suck it up, right? Do you right, go, and there's not really a lot of other places for you to go anyway. So it's no. like you can and go a down lot of the street to another are, store. Yeah, and they've got strategies which say, I'm going to buy this brand. If I have to wait for it for six months, that doesn't change my strategy. Uh, you know, we'll see, I guess. Yeah. Well, links in the show notes if you want to see the results for yourselves. We'll finish up with a science segment. Uh, Greg, you found an article tracking an uptick in solar flare activity. It looks like it's been a busy solar month and could continue to be busy, and that has repercussions for electronics and telecommunications. Yes, it does. And this is not immediately obvious, and it's something I've been trying to research for three months now, and I really haven't got to the end of it. I've got a blog post, which I'm putting together. Hopefully, um, I'll get that out into the Human Infrastructure magazine in our newsletter when I get it finished. But this was an article I saw this month, which is that the sun, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about SpaceX launching some satellites, um, what apparently was a bit of a YOLO. Ah, we'll just ship them up. And out of 44, you know, 36 of them fell back to Earth after being blasted by uh, radiation from the sun. But apparently the sun's been erupting nonstop all month. But more importantly, uh, the people who monitor the sun and predict solar weather, did you know that there's actually a team of people doing solar weather predictions? I think that's really cool. Yeah, there is. Well, apparently they've been researching the sun and they expect three more years at reaching a peak in 2025. Uh, to, of increasing uh, solar flare activity. And the radiation from the sun will hit the earth. And the question is whether we're prepared for that. And increasingly in my mind, I'm calling back to a thing called the Carrington event, which was in 1859, a solar flare destroyed most of the telegraph networks of the era. Uh, there was so much energy coming out of a solar flare that there were reports of sparks showering from telegraph machines, shocking operators and setting papers ablaze. All over the planet, colourful auroras illuminated the nighttime skies, glowing so brightly that birds began to chirp and labourers started their daily chores, believing the sun had begun rising. If you think about that much solar energy coming into the modern telecommunications network with copper in the ground, electronics everywhere, if we get something at that level, how much of the network, which is what we talk about here, could potentially be damaged? And I wonder... Uh, if we'll hear more about that, uh, you're thinking about climate change. I'm also thinking about solar flares and impact to the network infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure. I mean, you know, why not? Pandemic, war, now we'll have solar eruptions destroying our infrastructure. Let's let's go for it. Bring it on. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it just seems like, a you know, if you've got a risk register, put this one on it. You can look sure, really good. You've got the best one. Might yeah. as well. <laughs> That's it. Start talking about it now in those meetings. And two years from now, if it happens, you'll look like a prophet. And uh, Yeah, yes. maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. But there's evidence. Uh, I'll, I'll the, say the links are in the show notes, so you can look it up. Yeah, the links are in the show notes. Yeah. And I, that, that, Greg, you were quoting from an article on history.com about the Carrington event. That is totally worth your time reading. We'll have that link in the show notes. Go check it out, and, and it might give you a sense of what could happen down the line. Yeah, just imagine what a modern network would look like with a solar event that can actually shed oh. so much electromagnetic radiation that 200 years ago it actually caused your 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 telegraph network to catch on fire, basically. Just mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah. It is mind-boggling. All right, that wraps up the news portion. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet. We're going to dive into FortiGuard Labs and the Threat Intelligence Service that's coming right up.
Today's Tech Byte podcast explores the world of threat intelligence, that is, information on active and emerging exploits, zero days, attack techniques, and more. Sponsor Fortinet provides threat intelligence to customers via its FortiGuard Labs. FortiGuard Labs analyzes billions of global security events daily that distill those events into actionable information for network and security teams. And they also use those events to inform security updates to its own products. Our guest is Derek Mankey, head of FortiGuard Labs, the threat intelligence and research organization at Fortinet. Derek, welcome to the podcast and, and kick us off first. How does FortiGuard Labs get all this data that it's analyzing? Well, there's not there's not a silver bullet here. We get we get our data from a lot of sources, but our core data source uh, with FortiGuard Labs, we've been building actually for 20 years. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that it's a big network. We call this a FDN, a FortiNet distribution network. We have over six million sensors deployed worldwide, and uh, and and we're getting information coming back. Not just not just security logs, but a lot of information on attacks. Right, where what what attacks are happening? Where are they moving? Where, what are the hottest vulnerabilities? And we're starting to look at look at that data and pull it into uh, in, into the big machine, right? So this happens very frequently. We get over a hundred billion threat events a day, and and it's no easy feat, right? This is a um, what I call pseudo real time because there's no such thing as real true real time, but we're getting this coming in, into our labs uh, really on a per minute basis uh, worldwide. So when you say sensors, are you talking about Fortinet firewalls and other security devices, or does Fortinet also have its own devices out on the internet just collecting data? Yeah, actually, a, a bit of both. So we have we have a lot of our uh, firewall flagship firewalls that are reporting data when customers opt into it, and about seventy five percent of our customers do. Um, but it's actually our security fabric. So we're talking about sandbox. We're talking about uh, deception products, right? We have a, a whole gambit throughout the fabric that is able to report different data, and so we have to take that data in and normalize it, of course. But we're also uh, doing um, threat hunting. So we do a lot of threat hunting, dark. Uh, Darknet infiltration, we do uh, honeypots as well, right? Trying to collect zero-day samples too out there. So that implies that you've got quite a large operation because if you're, all of those things that you just mentioned are, are pretty much unique skills. This isn't like, you know, today I'm going to go troll the dark web for the latest information. That's just a whole skill set on its own. In fact, probably a whole team of its own. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, completely agree. And we actually have... Uh, we have specialists in different areas. So as an example, if you look at the makeup of the team, we have over 300 people in our in, in our FortiGuard Labs SOC mm-hmm. that is analyzing this data. And it's a divide and conquer uh, mechanism. So yeah. we're looking at viruses as an example. That's a unique skill set. We have reverse engineers just looking at viruses. And mm-hmm. you know, Windows malware is different than Linux malware as an example, right? Then we also have a team, a small but powerful team of zero-day researchers too. Uh, so that's, you know, we have... Uh, in that zero-day research team, we're actually going out and proactively finding zero-day vulnerabilities. In fact, um, you know, I helped write this program back in 2006. Since 2006, we've discovered over a thousand zero-day vulnerabilities. That's a mm. lot. We're working with over a hundred different vendors mm. to patch their products proactively, and that's just a small part of that that 300 makeup uh, of the team. Right. Then, of course, we have, um, as I said, threat hunters. We have people also looking at the dark web piece and and so forth. Um, and and so we're we're constantly cross-functioning these teams together because every threat is not just about a virus or a vulnerability. Yeah, well, I think the key thing to take away here is that you've got a substantial commitment to this threat intelligence business. You're not, a lot of companies take a threat intelligence feed from somebody else and then feed it into their product. But I think there's real value in, say, having the threat intelligence capability inside your organization and using that to directly feed into your products. There's like, I've always joked that companies should put a finger, put a ring on it. You know, if you're going to partner with somebody, you're probably better off having it in-house because there's definite synergies in having that threat intelligent feed inform your entire product design process. 
Yeah, absolutely. And having it in-house has less roadblocks as well, too. We don't have mm. to wait on a third party and because we have to move with speed with a lot of this data, mm. of course, to process it. Um, we do have to have, like, when, when we find a new a new uh, virus, a piece of malware, as an example, we have to uh, work with other teams to make sure that we're getting the proper detections in place, too. Mm. And, of course, this is all about escalation paths. As I said, we have 100 billion threat events coming in a day. Of course, we can't just mm. tackle that with you can't tackle it with 3,000 people. So we have to process this. We have to normalize it, uh, separate the signal from the noise. So we actually have working environments where we have escalation paths with uh, AI, true machine learning models. Actually, we have well over 20 different machine learning models in place that help to pick up the interesting bits and then escalate that mm. uh, you know, in partnership with our human analysts. And so this is the way that we work. It's not siloing or separating these. It's actually working all together with these models. And I guess the unique thing here is that this threat intelligence is integrated with the firewalls at Fortinet cells today. So your um, intrusion protection system, intrusion detection system, or the endpoint software or the SD-WAN, you can take this threat intelligence and include it in the Fortinet tools that you have today. This isn't separate or an isolated product that comes as an extra product. This is all integrated. Absolutely. In fact, if you look at FortiGuard Labs and step back and look at the big picture, it is the the brain and also the heart of, of, of our security fabric. It is mm. front and center. It's integrated. All that processing and the normalization that's happening in the middle to make sense of this intelligence, that gets translated into actionable controls. And exactly right, as you mentioned, this is transparent to the customer and the end user, right? By getting 40 guard subscription services, this goes into no matter what product you have, and most of our products support, Guard subscription services that they're able to integrate that, update that again mm. uh, on on a you know we we do pushes out of threat intelligence every five minutes to our global customer base. That's how active this is, mm-hmm. and uh, that intelligence is getting integrated and it's able to effectively mitigate and block and detect new threats as well too. Because I basically what I would do there is I would go into a firewall, add the threat intelligence capability, and instead of configuring rules by IP address, I would say if an attack matches this group block or drop or something like that is that how is that or drill into that for me well no this is the whole point you don't so we're trying to take out the mundane day-to-day stuff from a security operation perspective so we don't want to have humans doing the the basic things like that policy configurations adding adding or dropping a rule for an ip address because those things those things are cheap they change every every five seconds it's just that that's an uphill battle you're going to lose right so the whole point of this is is transparency right Uh, so that it comes it comes in uh, transparently and that it can be applied so that the human operator isn't having to do that in fact what it's the what happens is that the fabric takes care of all this itself right Right. so you just subscribe to the services you get the updated intelligence coming into the fabric it takes care of all of that Mm -hmm. so that when you have a real big problem i.e you're act you're under active attack and you want to know why is this a problem what do i do about this that is what that is that is where the intelligence actually escalates it up to the the sock resource so i could just be like in my appliance just say turn on the security function and let all of that intelligence data feed into a firewall rule set. So, I mean, as we record this, we're facing an elevated security environment. And I mean, we always face an elevated security environment. But really, this is about saying my existing technology, which has already got the control points, you know, you, you're feeding data through it. Maybe you're using SD-WAN, but your security is in the network. You can just add this and all of a sudden, your actually your posture suddenly elevates. Absolutely. And in that posture, you get enhanced visibility and you actually get enhanced mitigation uh, capability as well, too. So it's extremely important, right? Because I always say you, you can't protect against what you can't see, right? It's an invisible enemy. But So when you say mitigation, what do you mean? Because I would think that you could block it or are you just saying we flag it 
and then wait for the operator to work? Or can I just automatically enable a rule and say, if I match this category, just block it? Or is there some, am I missing something? Absolutely. This, this, this can be all automated, right? This is the point. So, and in fact, there's default configurations that we decide within FortiGuard Labs based on our expertise so that you don't, it takes the guesswork out of the, out of the, uh, the analysts in the security operations center. Now, a few times with Fortinet, we've talked about security fabric. Is this part of that? That idea of the Fortinet security fabric is the idea that the whole security system draws together. Is this part of that capability? Absolutely. And this is, this is the actionable integrated threat intelligence of the fabric. So the fabric itself will talk to each, uh, you know, integrates with itself in terms of security controls, policies, but the intelligence of FortiGuard Labs piece is core to that, right? It's the updated dynamic intelligence that is actually giving the guidance and making the decisions if it's configured that way, of course, to, to do all that automation and apply those rules uh, on that behalf. And the fabric essentially means that if I've got Fortinet products, a, a firewall, endpoint security, IPS, whatever, they're all sort of working in concert together. They're aware of each other and coordinating on enforcing policy. Absolutely. And, and we also have to remember that within the fabric, of course, it's all it's all about Fortinet products, but we also interoperate. We have fabric ready partners as well, a big list of them. So we interoperate with other products through protocols, you know, supportive protocols that we've set up as well. So the integration piece actually extends, right? We're, we're trying to cover end to end uh, from, you know, endpoint all the way to data center. Okay. So it's not just a Fortinet story. You've, the fabric extends to third parties. Absolutely. Mm. So you've talked about using threat intelligence to inform, you know, the security capabilities of my security devices. Are there deliverables I get from this service that are more for human consumption, for analysts, for network engineers, for security pros, just wanting to get a general sense of what the, you know, threat environment or the threat landscape looks like? Yeah, this is this this is the beautiful piece of it, right? So we take we there's more than one action point on one bit of intelligence, right? So we just talked about the automation, that's the uh, the mitigation and, and the security controls. We also take the same intelligence and we contextualize it, and we have multiple different ways that we're actioning on this. So as an example, we create um, weekly threat intelligence briefs, and this is not meant to be a you know five page brief. <laughs> Uh, hurt your eyes and strain your eyes every week because not everyone has a lot of time, of course, right? But quick briefs, what's up, what's happening? Are you are you seeing this? Um, do you have uh, the proper controls in place? We also release threat signals. These are campaign-based. When there's a breaking threat, a ransomware threat, we have a, a quick, again, one-pages. We put up about two to three of these a week, right, um, to, to give guidance on what we're seeing from FortiGuard Labs, what you should do. Then we have a wider scope. So biannual threat, and, uh, threat landscape reports, as an example, so this is all for human consumption. Um, on top of that, I should say, we actually do threat intelligence sharing too, human to human, right? Where we actually um, have analysts talking to analysts. We share uh, this information also uh, to, to security operations centers too. Mm. And I understand you just put out a new threat report? Yes, yeah, we just released our second half of 2021 uh, threat landscape report. Yeah, I read those, by the way. Um, I actually make a point. If if you're a, a professional, IT professional, and you're not reading threat landscapes as a sort of a regular-ish thing, then you're probably not fully aware of what's happening around you. It's not like you can be up to date to the minute. That's why you have a threat intelligent feed. But just an observation that there's so much that you can do by being um, engaged and and knowing what's actually happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this this report, you know, we, we have the fun job of taking half a year's of data, and thinking about 100 billion <laughs> events a day, yeah, that's right. multiply that by half a year and and uh, crunching that down into this report to make yeah, it a 20 page right? report. So, it's pretty useful, yeah, though, because yeah. what it does is it gives you an overview of the major attacks and gives you a, 
I find that reading these, which is something I actually do, believe it or not, gives me a sense of where security is moving to. Like if these are the attacks, what are this, what is the security industry reacting to? And so having free access to this, like a lot of people actually pay big money to companies for this sort of data. Yes. Um, yeah. Like hundreds of thousands of dollars to get access to these reports. And it's actually, to be honest, having read others, this one's just as good as those. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you hit on a good point. This is a, this is free. Uh, we do this because we want to make it more expensive for the cyber criminals to operate. So this is just our way of of helping with that disruption, right? Because mm -hmm. the more that we can actually show what's happening on there and expose them, and then also add, you know, some some good uh, suggestions in there so that we can stack, you know, raise the elevation on that security stack. That's what we're trying to do. And there's a lot of interesting things, of course, that, that we uncover with this too. Yeah, I'm guessing if you're covering, if the latest one covers the last half of 2021, that Log4j probably plays a big role in, in the latest report. Yeah, no surprise there. So Log4j, and we called this out in the report, it, it moved with incredible speed. Speed was a, a main theme of this report. And comparatively, if we looked at, you know, in the first half of 2021, we had a proxy log on with the MS Exchange. It was also a group of vulnerabilities. Big at the time, it was about a year, like almost a year ago it broke. Like looking at the difference in speed that these two moved, because that was significant as well. Log4j moved actually 50 times faster in its 10-day span it had more volume and prevalence than any other threat in, in, in the whole second half of, of 2021. So it really just shows when you have a some that perfect storm, right? A big attack surface, an easily, you know, relatively easy to exploit vulnerability. It's going to spread literally like wildfire. And that's what mm. we saw. Okay. So, you know, we talked about the example of log4j, which is a specific attack. Did you, does the, did the th uh, reports cover anything about how attackers are, you know, what they're up to as opposed to just the specific nature of the attack? Yeah, so we're constantly innovating with new views, and we have a brand new view. Actually, in the last two reports, we've expanded on it, and we're actually showing the MITRE ATT&CK framework. So these are TTPs, techniques, tactics, procedures. This is showing the toolkit of attackers mm -hmm. and their preferred choice, because there's um, you know, literally thousands of different ways they can move, and this just hones in to create a heat map of just you know the top 10, essentially, what we're seeing. And yeah, what, what we saw and called out on the report, if we look at the execution phase, so how, how they're executing code, as an example, we saw that 42% were executing through APIs and another 19% on scripting. It's showing over 60% it's done through automation now on code. Rather than, as an example, we also saw 21% uh, user execution. So waiting on the user to click on a link or make a move as an example. Mm -hmm. It's really showing that they're moving towards weaponization of automation uh, to execute their code. And, and no, no surprise, we also saw a heavy focus on the defense evasion tactic. Um, so there was about five different techniques that accounted for a, a vast majority of the ways that they're trying to get around security controls. So by us highlighting that and understanding it, we're able to actually effectively close those gaps. It's also a research piece in that way. It's really important. Mm. So if folks want to find out more about um, uh, FortiGuard Labs or get their hands on this report, where should they go? Absolutely. So uh, you can go to fortinet.com slash fortiguard slash labs. It's your best one-stop shop. All right. That's fortinet.com slash fortiguard slash labs. We'll also have that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, this does wrap up our time. Uh, thank you, Derek, for joining us. And thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. As always, thanks to you for being a listener. If you like this show, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>